Hi, welcome to Matters of the Heart and Soul. I'm your host, Janie Charlotte. Matters of the Heart and Soul is a podcast to raise awareness and awaken humanity to all that is within. We want to be a beacon of light on your life journey. Welcome to Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. My name is Janie Charlotte, your host, and welcome to another podcast. Um, we have here Russell Bruce co-hosting with me. Hello, everybody. And we have Miss Verdi Batiste. Welcome to the podcast, Verdi. Thanks for having me. On today's episode, we are talking about infant mortality, and this is the story of baby Moxie. Verdi is the mom of baby Moxie, so Verdi is here to talk about her story. Verdi is an assistant principal out in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, and I can only imagine how devastating it is to lose a baby but also to lose a newborn baby when it can be prevented is even more heartbreaking. So Verdi is here to shed some light on a topic that goes under the radar a lot. And so we hope that her story can really, really um, start a conversation that a lot of moms who go through this sometimes are silenced. You know, whether they're silenced because they feel they're alone or they're hurt or just... um, they just feel like no one would believe them. So Verdi, I'm so glad you are here and you are going to be sharing your story with our podcast and our listeners. Yes. Thanks for the, um, thanks for giving me the platform, Janie Russell, to share it. Um, I know Janie, you and I have talked a lot about this. So um, I just think it's important that we share, you know, this story and, you know, I hear a lot of other stories that's happening across our country. So Um, just having the space to talk about it and hopefully you maybe save another baby's life or mother's life. Exactly. Um, We're going to get into Verdi's story, but we want to read some statistics on infant mortality so that this story can come full circle to you guys. Um, Russell is going to go ahead and start with that. We're going to read some national statistics some statewide statistics, and also we're going to break it down by race as well. I think you're on mute, Russell. That would help, right? Yeah. Once again, Verdi, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. So as far as statistics are concerned on a national level, or say an international level, America is averaging about 5.8 infant mortality deaths per 1,000 births. So it's 5.8. And just to put that in perspective, the leader in the world is Afghanistan. They actually have 100 per 1,000. So that's like 10% of the babies born die. Um, A lot of the African countries are anywhere between 50 to say 94 per 1,000. So once again, in America, it's 5.8. Uh, that doesn't make us the best. There are tons of other countries that are doing far better, uh, like Monaco, Japan. Some of those countries are as low as two. 
And a lot of the countries that have low infant mortality rates also have high life expectancy rates. And I know I've done a lot of studying before on like Okinawa, Japan, they have like, they lead the world in centenarians. If they're not number one, they're probably number two. Uh, so how does this break down per state? So there's two states of interest and one of them Bertie actually lives in. Uh, the state of Mississippi leads the country with 8.3 deaths per 1,000. And the state of Louisiana is 7.6 per 1,000. And once again, to put that into perspective, uh, the states that are with the lowest, California, somewhere around two, Connecticut, two, Colorado, somewhere in the two range. So 7.6 stands out. So what we wanted to do is take a deeper look at that particular number and see how does it impact Blacks here in America. And taking a look at those two states, uh, Mississippi and Louisiana, we're looking at Mississippi is around 12 deaths per 1,000. Louisiana is 11 deaths per 1,000. So those numbers are pretty high. And uh, and across the board, Blacks uh, in America are averaging around 10.7. So over the last, say, three to five years, the numbers overall in America have been going down on infant mortality uh, deaths per 1,000. But the gap between Blacks and other races, say like Asian, White, and Hispanic, is almost double. So, you know, we're looking at say 10.7 for black infant mortality deaths per 1,000 and Asian, whites, Latino range between 3.7 and five. So these statistics are alarming. Um, one of the things that, that touches me is we just, we're right in the middle of this big election storm and some of these issues don't get pushed to the forefront. Uh, since 19, the mid-1970s, I think it was since Roe versus Wade, we've had somewhere around 44 million Black abortions. So there's a lot of blame to point around for that. Uh, also, we have a situation where a lot of kids going missing. Mm -hmm. But we also have this, this particular issue with infant mortality when it comes to Black pregnancies. So it's almost like there's no voice for these children. So today we would like to, you know, touch on a particular topic and make it real for everybody. Because a lot of times it gets filtered through, you know, normal media, you know, based upon politics, religion or, or race or what have you. But today we like to give you guys a real life account of what actually happens. Thanks, Russell. Okay, Verdi, um, let's hear your story. All right, so um, end of July um, last year, or be the year before, I got pregnant for Moxie. Um, and I got pregnant through an IUD, so she was a surprise. And also like a miracle, right? Because um, it was so unexpected. Um, started my prenatal care. I mean, went to the doctor, almost immediately 
Um, I would say around 12 weeks in, I was getting an ultrasound and the, I was just taking forever. So it really didn't alarm me, but um, once the ultrasound um, was done, um, I was told that I needed to report immediately to see my doctor. They had called my doctor. So um, I knew something was wrong. So I went up to the doctor, my OB at that time, and he basically told me that Moxie looked like she had what was called an emphalus seal. Um, and so I wasn't quite sure what that was. Um, he said it it isn't a circumstance where um, the baby's um, organs live outside of her body. So, um, and he was like, this is really serious. Um, we need to, um, you need to go to the maternal fetal medicine doctor. Um, he's maternal fetal medicine doctor specialized in, um, it could be anywhere from women, uh, that are suffering from different type of medical issues, such as high blood pressure or, you know, heart disease or anything like that that's pregnant, but they also take a look at the the, the fetus, right? So they under they are trained to understand what's happening with a baby. So about a week later, um, I went to see um, the maternal fetal medicine doctor. And when I say it was one of the hardest appointments that you could possibly go to. So um, Moxie dad and I, we went and he basically told me that he saw that Moxie had an cell and that these babies, I think he said it was so high as to like, 30%, I want to, if I'm not mistaken, have like some type of genetic, um, some type of genetic issue. It might be higher than that. Um, and that we needed to, you know, get blood work in, which I had started and also go through an amniocentesis to make sure that she didn't have any genetic issues. So um, we went through all of that and maybe took about four weeks and it came out that Moxie was healthy. She mm -hmm. had a, um, she had no genetic issues, um, second miracle, you know, mm -hmm. and, yeah. um, and she just had an isolated cell, you know, and what they thought that it was like super large, it ended up just being partial liver and partial stomach, right? And so this was really great news because babies that have isolated cells tend to survive, like, especially if you could carry them to term, um, their life expectancy is high. Mm -hmm. So from that point, um, I had an OB I was not comfortable with. At this point, you know, I started to read a lot about women dying in childbirth, right? And so I was just having some issues of like a lot of bleeding and my OB just was not present when I was in the room. I just felt like he um, just was not listening to me. He couldn't give me answers. And so I made the decision that I was going to switch over to an, a female OB that was Black. Mm -hmm. And so I just was so just concerned about my health and Moxie's health. Um, and not that this OB was problematic, but I just felt like he wasn't um, who I needed at that moment, right? And statistically, I knew that my chances were higher with someone that looked like me and that would, would understand, you know, what I was going through. So I did make that switch about five months in. I also had an extremely close relationship with my maternal fetal medicine doctor. So um, I, I did everything. Once I found out that Moxie had an cell. Um, I called every medical professional that I know, Janie, you were one of them. <laughs> um, you know, I have a, you know, 
I have someone that is a doctor that I know. Um, and so also just doing a lot of research on umbrella sales, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I also joined a face, face group uh, group called Moose. So it was for mothers with umphalocil babies. And so you started to see all these, these stories of survival. And then with Moxie, I mean, I'm, I saw kids that had all of their stomach and intestines out, right? So it just gave me hope that she was gonna be healthy. Mm-hmm. Move along. I'm following the Facebook book. So they're like, these women are like, this is what you should be looking for as you're getting treated, right? Um, I also saw hospitals that specialize in follow sales. And the closest one to me would be Texas Children. Um, so if you go on the website, they have a page about it. They have doctors that, you know, specialize in it. Um, so in meeting with my MFM, I was very clear. I was like, hey, I get that Moxie is going to need extra support when she's born. Um, I'm like, do you all feel that you have the capability to take care of Moxie? So at this point, I've gone through 3D ultrasounds. I have, he's looking at her every month. I mean, she was just the most active baby in my stomach. Like she was just move. And um, at one point he was like, well, Early on and early on, you know, he was like, you know, these babies can have underdeveloped lungs, but if you could carry her to term, if, you know, you don't have any complications, you know, once she comes out, we know how to treat this, right? If that would happen. And so he was very clear with me, oh, I think we could take care of Moxie here. Like, I feel confident. So the way he explained it to me is that Moxie was already on a list at the hospital NICU, right? Because we, being that she had umphalocele, she was going to be in the NICU for a while. So he said, and this was like maybe three, four months into my pregnancy. They're like, she said, the doctors are already discussing what needs to take place with Moxie. And right? this is the fetal maternal doctor that's- this, Right, the, they call them maternal okay. fetal medicine doctors. Okay. So if I say MFM, that's what I'm referring to. So the maternal fetal medicine doctor is like, they are meeting weekly, bi-weekly, and your baby, as you get closer, is moving to the top of the list. So there is a game plan on what needs to happen as you're going through your pregnancy. Like, she, they're going to be ready for her. I'm like, are you sure? He was like, yes, yeah, she looks good. She looks healthy. <clears throat> so as the months went by, I'm on my Facebook group. So as I would go into the doctor's office, I'm like, so I should have an MRI coming up. I should have this coming up. And he would even joke with me and say, you know more, you know more about this than, you know, I know, which of course is not the fact, but I was very, I just made sure I educated myself on what needed to happen during my prenatal care. So I would say about, um, so I would say um, about 28 weeks or so, maybe less than that, it might've been like 23. Um, I received a shot to help boost Moxie's lungs. I actually had a fibroid fibroid that they thought might put me in preterm labor, which it didn't, but just to be sure, they gave me um, a steroid shot, which would help boost her lungs. So that happened in February. Um, and then I went in for an MRI. So the MRI basically scanned my me to see if Moxie's lungs were developed, right? So after everything that happens with when you know you're having a baby that's going to have a birth defect, every every crossroad is just like, oh my gosh, yes, we made it. After the MRI, I get the paperwork back. It shows grossly normal. So I go in to see the MFM that month. He wasn't available, so I saw another doctor. 
she goes through the MRI and she's like, hey, it looks great. I'm looking at her. She looks good, right? Um, and so I get the MRI results. The results show grossly normal lungs. So we're like, yes, she looks good. Even as I'm going through it, um, babies don't breathe in the womb, but they kind of practice. You can mm -hmm. see that practicing, just brain development was good. I mean, just no type of spinal um, conditions or anything like that. Just like looked super healthy, right? So at that point, size of the lungs looked normal. Um, brain development looked normal. Heart looked normal. Moxie was a normal, thriving, in utero, growing, ready to come out. Ready to come out. Yeah. yeah. So we decided that we would wait till 39 weeks to have her, um, just to give her as much time as she needed for like to survive. Right. That's and like to full come out, term. Yeah. Right. Full term. Like make sure her lungs are um, ready to go. So on that 38th week, I just noticed like um, it just like I, I just I just noticed that she wasn't moving as much, you know, as she normally does. So I had an appointment that Wednesday um, and I, I kind of noticed that probably like Monday. Right. But she was still moving and active. So I told my mom, I said, I'm going in this. It was a week before she was actually due. I was like, I'm going in. I have a feeling I'm not coming back home. So literally packed up everything, put it in the car, took my mom with me because I was like, just in case mm -hmm. I get admitted today. I'm going to have everything available. Go to the doctor. My fluid was low. And so the doctor made the decision to deliver Moxie through cesarean that day, which Moxie had to be delivered through C-section because of her omphalocele. Mm -hmm. Because going through a birth canal could have ruptured her omphalocele. Because the omphalocele has like a, a covering over it. Mm -hmm. So there is a covering over the organs. Um, and so I go into the hospital, they admit me, um, let me back up a little bit. I also was told like going through the Facebook group, they were like, you need to set up appointments with the NICU, the hospital, you'll get a social worker. So I knew all this. So as talking to my MFM, he was like, um, I'm going to schedule all of that. So at that point, I, um, at that point I had a meeting with the NICU. So I was met by the social worker. Um, and she was going to be my so social worker for my time in the hospital. So I don't know if people understand that you get a social worker if you know that your baby's going to be in the NICU. And we knew that she was going to be in the NICU for some time because you have to give that omphalocele skin time to go over the omphalocele. So she shows me around the NICU. Um, it's, it's a really nice NICU. It's a new hospital. Um, How hospital is this? This is at Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge. Okay. So... Um, we talk a little about them, follow seal, ask questions about the NICU. She assures me the social worker was like, we've dealt with babies like this before. Um, you're in really good hands. And when I tell you, me, like the assurance and the trust I had for this hospital, it was like I was reassured that this was the right hospital to have my baby. So I go in, I see the, I meet with a NICU doctor. This is the same doctor that was on call when I had Moxie. I sat with her. I said, this, she, she looked through Moxie's record. She said, everything looks good. I said, are you sure you all have the capability to deliver Moxie at this hospital? She's like, yeah, we delivered a baby like this uh, 
a while ago, she was like, um, she was like, I feel confident if anything happens that we see that Moxie's lungs are underdeveloped, she will be transported out. Fast forward a little bit, I also had to go see a pediatric surgeon. So the surgeon was to put the omphalocele back if it needed to go back, right? To put her organs back in. And I also went to see the cardiologist because they had to make sure her heart was healthy because mm -hmm. omphalocele sometimes can pull and it could affect the baby's heart. So I go in for my first appointment with the cardiologist. She's like, Moxie heart is great. Everything looks good. She's like, I'm gonna have you come back again. There was a chamber in the heart that she just couldn't see. And she was like, so I looked at the cardiologist and I said, what is worst case scenario? She said, worst case scenario is that Moxie's lungs are underdeveloped and um, you will need, she will need an ECMO machine. So the machine is a life support. So basically it will give her heart time to rest so her lungs could develop. Mm -hmm. And I said, do they have this at woman? She's like, no, but don't worry. If this happens, which we do not think will happen because she's looking at 3D images as well, right? So at this point, look, I don't understand how no one caught from the MRI to the cardiologist to the maternal fetal medicine doctor, how nobody caught her lungs being underdeveloped, right? Because as I'm going through the Facebook group, it is common that this, type of, um, they talk about how they catch these things. Mm -hmm. Like they constantly monitor the lungs because they wanna know what the lungs look like before the baby is born. So I'm under depression, her lungs look great. But she told me, she said, Verdi, don't worry about it. We transport babies out all the time for this. And she said, if that's what she needs, that's what we're gonna do. So I go, I'm talking to the NICU doctor and I'm saying, if Moxie would need ECMO, um, are you confident that it, it will, she will be transported and all. She's like, don't worry, we do this all the time. She said, even if um, Moxie's lungs need more support and we can't support it, we're gonna transport her if anything is wrong with her that we cannot do here at this hospital. Okay. Janie, I literally look at the woman, the neonatologist and I say, do you think, are you sure you all can handle this or do I need to transfer to Texas Children to have her? I was like, it'll be a little bit more work. Um, something just showed up on my screen. I'm sorry. I said it's gonna be it's gonna be a little bit more work, but I, I'm I'm willing. I just want to make sure that Moxie gets the best care. She's like, not a hesitation in her voice. Nothing. We can do it. So I'm being told by the cardiologist. I'm being told by the maternal fetal medicine doctor, the neonatologist at this point that they can handle Moxie at Woman's Hospital. So I go back, um, Janie and Russ, and I'm like, um, I go in, I feel confident. I'm in the um, delivery room and they proceed to give my mom a band because COVID was, had just happened. So to make a long story short, um, what it did was I called the, I called like four weeks before I had Moxie. I said, okay, what is the COVID policy? They said some, only two people can be in the, only two people can be in the delivery and two people can be in the, um, in the NICU. And it's only the mom and dad that can be in the NICU, right? No one else can be in the NICU. So at this point, Roy just is not comfortable seeing births. So Moxie's dad was like, 
let your mom go with you to the, you, you'll deliver Moxie. And he said, I will come as soon as Moxie is born and I will go to the NICU. So I asked the social worker, is that okay? She was like, yes, I've worked it out. It's fine. Two weeks before, same thing. I call her back. Are you sure this is right? She's like, no, do not worry about it. It is fine. Hmm. So Janie, as I'm about to deliver, okay? I stop the whole room and I say, do not get my mom that band because her dad is coming and I wanna be sure he can get in the NICU. Mm -hmm. they, they're like, do not worry. He will be able to get in the NICU. Tell your mom needs to put on the band, but it will, it's all worked out. Don't worry about it. I have Moxie at 111. And we talked about what 111 is, mm -hmm. right? So it takes about 30 minutes. She comes out. My, my maternal fetal medicine actually comes in to deliver her. So that's how. And this is the same doctor that you met for the tour. Right. That so you the, talked to many times. The same doctor I met on the tour. We talked. Okay. Right. Like sat down, had a conversation. She, she went through the chart. Doctor. Everything looked good. Everything looked this good. This is the exact same doctor that's here for the delivery. Right. And okay. then my maternal med my maternal fetal medicine doc doctor, I asked him to be part of Moxie's delivery because okay. he had gone through her whole process with me with her right. and father's deal. So he was like, yeah, I don't normally deliver babies, but sure, I'll come deliver Moxie. And my OBGYN was there. Okay. So these are all your doctors that you were with throughout your pregnancy for all yeah. your maternal care. Yeah. All of that. So all of no it. new doctors on the scene. Nope, okay. nope, nope, no new okay. doctors on the scene. The same doctors. They deliver Moxie. You see them fall asleep. Um, you see them fall asleep. I'm actually, um, I could show, I could send you a picture, Janie, of her actual fall asleep. That he holds her. My mom looks at him and says, "How much do you think she weighs?" He's like, "She's like six pounds." Mm. So they bring her to the back. She didn't cry right when she came out, but. A few minutes, like a minute or so later, I hear two strong wails of crying, mm -hmm. right? And then she's quiet. So they wheel me back. I meet with the um, neonatologist and they bring you into the room. And I said, is everything fine? She said, we had to intubate her. I said, well, you know, what's going on? She said, don't worry about it. It's normal with these babies. She really didn't go into the whole explanation for being intubated but being that I studied this Janie I clearly understood that babies with seals, it is normal for them to be intubated right so you like, didn't feel really concerned at that no, point you felt no, this is no. most likely you were this, ready you were prepared for this part I was prepared like very prepared um and then in the back of my mind I was like if she's really sick they're they're gonna transport her like is they're not gonna keep her here right mm -hmm. um, but at no point and and they didn't give me any indi indication that she was sick or critical right she did have a thumb that was kind of wonky like it it looks a little detached but other than that she was like healthy like she mm -hmm. so I went back to my room um, about an hour later, they had to get me all together. About an hour later, um, the social worker comes in with the surgeon um, on call. And he's like, we're not ready to put her on seal. We're not really ready to put it back in. He said, but at some point, we're, we, we're thinking we're going to go with the um, 
the wrap method where we'll just let the skin grow over it. We'll wrap it. And when she's ready, we'll just go ahead and do it. I was like, fine. All part of the plan. I'm like, I'm seeing the surgeon. Mm -hmm. Janie, this is at 111. Three o'clock rolls around. Four o'clock rolls around. Finally around, I would say four, 4.30. I'm finally like, I keep asking to like, when can her dad go up? When can her dad go up? So around 4, 4.30, the nurse comes in. She was like, her dad can go up. So I sent my mom down to get the bag for her dad because I had a bag for her. And um, I'm so prepared. I'm like, I had stuff for NICU room and mm -hmm. we knew we were going to be there a while. So I had everything prepared and ready to go. And so he comes and my mom meets them and they walk in and um, he's like, I need to go to the NICU. My daughter's up there. He's met by, I think they, I'm not quite sure, but it's like two or three police officers. And they're like, you cannot go up there because her mom has the ban. Hmm. So my mom, you know, my mom at this point is like, oh no, we done made this clear. Who do you need to call? He needs to be up there with his baby. And this is, this has already been worked out. And this was already discussed prior to delivery. You okay. made sure. Okay. Right. Not only a month prior, I called right before I gave birth prior just to make sure. And I stopped them in the, in the um, delivery room just to triple check. Right. And so um, they like, you know, they, they, you know, you're a black man. And if you, if you would see Roy, he's a big black man. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, they were not having it. So they called the NICU and the NICU told, said that he was not allowed up. So till did they day, give a reason? No. Till this day, we still, they actually apologized for it. They said that that should not have happened. So the hospital did apologize to us probably every meeting. And um, so till this day, we still have no idea why he wasn't allowed to go up to the NICU. So he, he told my mom, and you know, you just got to be so careful being a black man in America at any point, right? Your two police officers are downstairs. And he was just like, even though my mom was fussing, he was just like, when he talked to me, he's like, Verdi, I just don't want any drama. I just want to see my baby. Because what was this, like, if he would have just act up or, you know, just like fought, what is the likelihood he would have been arrested? Yeah. I mean, and Moxie, Moxie was born in April of this year, 2020. And that was in the height of a lot of just unrest right. in the world. So, right. yeah. And, and he's very aware. Like, he was literally like, I can't, it's not even worth all of, like, losing my life. Like, it, I can't, I want to see my baby, right? And so around that time, I don't see my social worker. At some point, Janie, she comes early in the afternoon. She doesn't give me any updates. She just says that they're stabilizing her. So she doesn't really come back at, after that. So I keep asking. So once I go back up to my room, I have a little Asian nurse. And she, when I told her they did not allow her dad up, she was like furious. She was like, it had to go all the way ahead of nursing. She was like, we've contacted head of nursing. Maybe about an hour later, they're like, he can go up. But I don't understand if I had this conversation with a social worker, why I still don't, I still have no explanation. So, um, so I go ahead, Janie, to, um, 
I go to, um, so four o'clock, five o'clock. Finally, they, t they say Roy could go up, but they told me Moxie was not ready. I'm like, why is she not ready? No doctor calls, no nothing. Six o'clock, seven o'clock, I'm asking, I'm anxious. Around, yeah. I mean, around, this is six hours after she was born. Yeah. No yeah. updates. Right. So around seven o'clock, Janie, maybe 7.30, finally, when I had enough, the nurse was like, call the NICU. So I called the NICU. I called the NICU. And I'm like, what is, can someone call me and let me know what's going on with my baby, you know, Moxie Walker? She's, they're like, okay. So the neonatologist calls me back, right? I was under impression that the neonatologist would come up to my room and we would have a conversation. Now, let me be clear. Moxie has a birth defect. You intubated her. So the idea that you call me on the phone, so calls me and basically says, hey, it's been a process. She's really feisty. Um, she fought me putting in the PICU line. Um, and, but she looks good. She's stable. Like that's the conversation, right? And so I go back and I'm like, okay. So she was like, I said, can we go up? At this point, Janie, it's like 8 9 o'clock. So I just remember getting up there around nine o'clock. We're met by the nurse. So the nurse just basically tells us she had a long day. She's stable. Don't touch her too much. They, you know, they don't like to agitate babies in the NICU um, with a lot of stimulation. So we kind of touched her, um, all of that, like her little feet and, um, so I tell Roy, I said, go back home. It's been a long day. Um, she's stable. And I, and I said this because I was aware that we could be in the NICU anywhere from six weeks to nine months. Like that is what this birth defect is, right? Um, defect. So I was like, um, go home. She looks, she's stable. It's not anything you could do at this point. Um, and if anything happens, I'll call you. So the nurse, no one, no doctor, no one, just the nurse. I'm like, is she fine? She's like, yeah, she's fine. So we go, I go to the room, I get some rest. Um, and at this point, um, you know that Moxie's stable. Have you been just, has anyone told you anything as far as any diagnoses? Is she no. normal? You know, is she other than the birth defect? Is was there anything else at this no. point that no, you could be concerned about? Nothing, nothing. If anything, she's intubated. I was expecting that, right? With, with the birth defect. I mean, I was hoping that wouldn't be the case, but I was expecting it. And so even with that, I was like, she's intubated. Well, she just needs some help breathing. Like that's she just needs some help breathing. It was nothing like that, right? The middle of the night, I get a call from doctor, from a neonatologist and she basically says, um, I switched ventilators, I'm letting you know. And I'm like, well, why did you switch ventilators? She was like, I just think this, this is gonna help her breathe better. So Janie, at that point I became, I was like, wait, I don't know why you switching ventilators. Like I couldn't sleep six o'clock that morning. I just had a C-section. My mom like kind of, showers me a little bit, probably shouldn't have done that. You're not supposed to do that with a C-section, but I got in the wheelchair. She wheeled me to the NICU. I go in, I meet with the neonatologist. You know, I've read a lot about women who like say, like, or people that explain their experience 
when it comes to racism in the hospital. Like even being a black woman, like, you know, they say things like, um, your voice is not heard, you're ignored, you're looked down upon, they don't really wanna answer your questions. They look at you like, mm. it, it, it is like everything that they explain to the absolute T, like it is everything they explain, right? And so, um, and so Janie, I, um, so I'm asking this doctor, I was like, well, why did you switch ventilator? She was like, I, we, 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 it might, it might come a point where she might need an ECMO machine. So I called, um, children's hospital. I was like, well, what's going on? Like, why do you think she needs an ECMO machine? She really doesn't. Well, she might just need, she really doesn't explain it. Like Janie, I'm literally asking questions. Like, I'm like, well, I said, I don't want her to go to children's in New Orleans. I said, COVID at that point was super high in New Orleans. I was like, I really want her to go to Texas Children. Can you call Texas Children? She's like, oh no, your insurance doesn't cover that. I'm like, well, why doesn't my insurance cover that? Like, I've checked this, like I, it covers it. No, it doesn't. And I'm not, basically, she was like, I'm not doing that. We're gonna call the local hospitals. That's what we do. And was I was like- Was that exactly how she said it? Yeah, like exactly how she said it. She was, she was um, disturbed that I was asking her questions. Like it was so off-putting. It was so nasty. Um, it was just like, I don't want to deal with you right now. Um, but your original plan was Texas because you were concerned about the ECMO machine anyway. So you were going to just go there to begin with. That way you were already there. So right. you already knew that your insurance was good to go in Texas. Yeah. And like, I, okay. and I made sure that I had the best plan that was offered because okay. I knew, you know, like I have good insurance, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so she was just so off-putting. I had to go back to the room really quick to take some medicine. Um, and so she, she ignored me. She really didn't say anything. I asked her for Texas children. She told me no. She said, well, I'm gonna call Ashner. I was like, well, why didn't you call? And she told me at this point that children's denied her ECMO. So I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Deny ECMO. I didn't, what are you talking about? She's like, well, they just denied her because her father was still. And I'm like, what? Like nowhere in my prenatal care has anyone talked about qualifications for ECMO, right? Mm -hmm. And I also know that babies with umphalocils get ECMO because that's normal. Mm -hmm. But they talk about this, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm so confused at this point. I, she just- Do you think she was just lying just to kind of get you out of her hair? What I can tell you right now, the hospital has not provided any type of documentation of the phone call or even later, maybe in addendum notes. What we also found out is that this doctor didn't have any notes. Okay. So you nowhere in the notes um, was the attempt to transfer to another hospital for ECMO. It was not yeah. documented. No, it was not documented. Okay. No. Well, and let me the, ask a question. Sure. So the the person who called you, were they on site or were they off site? Why were they calling versus someone coming in speaking with you face to face? That's a good question. So what I've learned was, so the first neonatologist that took Moxie in, her shift ended probably around six. We talked around eight. So she was still at the hospital at that point. Um, I don't understand why she was left to call me. It should have been whoever was taking care of Moxie at that point, which her shift had ended. 
So she called me. So that that doctor that had Moxie over 12 hours did not contact me. She called me at around 11 to, in my room to tell me that Moxie, well, she switched ventilators. At no point did she come up to my room. At no point did she meet me and Roy in the, in the NICU. Um, so I have no idea. When we met for a meeting, our first meeting, she apologized. She said, I'm sorry, I should have come to your room. Because Russell, what they tried to do when I talked to the social worker after all of this, after we buried Moxie, I got on the phone with the social worker. What they tried to tell me was the social worker's exact words were like, she went up, the doctor went up to your room, Bertie. And I was like, no, she didn't. And then she said, well, you were medicated. So you probably just don't remember. And so I, I said on the phone, I was like, well, you need to check my records because I did not take any medicine, but ibuprofen. And I was like, I made a point not to take any type of medicine that would have me groggy because I had a child with a large birth defect in your hospital. So there was no medication at any point that would make me groggy. Right. All I was like, I guess they give you ibuprofen and Motrin. That was the extent of my medicine. Wow. So at that point, when they realized that I did not, I was not under, like I wasn't medicated when I got to the next meeting and I addressed that doctor about that, Russell, she literally was like, I'm sorry, I did not go up to your room. She said, I called you and I should have done, I should not have done that. I should have gone to your room. So she apologized for that. So you're saying that in, in one conversation, she, they tried to say, you don't remember you were on, you were medicated. We went to your room. And then once they realized that you were not under anything that made you sedated, she retracted and said, I apologize. I called. So the social worker initially is the one that said I was medicated. Okay. My social worker initially did that. But when I think at some point they talked, right? Yeah. And so by the time I got to the meeting, the doctor was very clear about, I did not go up to your room. You're right. Okay. Okay. So let's, let's get to the point um, where she denies the transfer. Right. And then what happens from that point? So at this point, um, Roy comes up and he's basically like, um, he's basically, Janie, he's basically like, um, he's like, what's going on? I'm like, literally, I'm like, I tell him, I was like, that doctor is, the morning doctor is like terrible, right? Mm-hmm. She is not listening to me. I told my mama that. I was like, I went and are you at Liberty to say this doctor's name? This is at Woman's Hospital in this is Baton Rouge. Hospital. I, I would prefer not to. Okay. Um, I've had, I have said it before, but. Okay. Okay. So, um, how did you say it? Her name is Dr. Volker. <laughs> okay. And, um, and Janie, she was just off-putting, right? So by the time Roy got there, she was not there anymore. Does that make sense? And she was, her shift had ended. She was gone. Okay. She was, gone. She was still at the hospital, apparently. So a new doctor comes in, Dr. Mitchell. So I meet with Dr. Mitchell. Roy's not there yet. 
And Dr. Mitchell was like, well, we've called Oshner. And I was like, well, why haven't they accept, why didn't they accept our children's? She shoes me off too. She, she really doesn't give an answer. And I was like, well, what qualifications does she need? And she, she, she was like, well, she really doesn't answer. And I was like, well, I want Moxie to go to Texas children. And at this point, Jenny, I'm asking for Texas children in general, because clearly they, they treat them follicles, right? So never at the point was I asking for transport just for ECMO. I was asking for transport because I wanted her to go to a hospital that specialized, right? Now that we know she's like, it's, they're still not telling me that anything's wrong with her. Like we still but, haven't. But even that is your prerogative to ask for that transfer. If right. that's truly where you want your daughter right. to receive care. Right. That is totally your choice. Right, right. So she's like, no, we're not going to do that. She said, we do in-state hospitals first. And she said, your insurance will not cover um, out of, she said, your insurance will not cover out of state. She's like, your insurance will only cover, like they make us do in-state first. So I'm even confused at this point because I have, my social worker has not been near me at this point. I have no idea why doctors are talking to me about insurance at the bedside of my child. Like this wasn't in a private room where we're discussing. It's literally at Moxie's bedside. So Dr. Volker, Dr. Mitchell has not called me in and like talked about her prognosis, talked about why they're not. Like literally at this point, Roy comes and he's like, well, why? Tell me why they're not taking her. And they was like, well, for ECMO, we got to get an artery out of her neck. We need her ABG. And we're just like, well, why aren't you getting those things? Like, you know, it was just like this lapse in time, like no sense of urgency. We're asking for transport. We're being, we're being told no. And all of this at the bedside of our child. Like this, no, no sit down meeting, no nothing. And at this point, we have no idea Moxie's critical. Like we recognize that she's sick. But we, we don't think she's deathly ill. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because if we knew she was deathly ill, it wouldn't have been like us having a conversation. It would have been like us probably screaming and hollering in the hospital for transport. So it, it, it all, like what people don't understand, it's like it all just, it like, it's like it's not happening. Like it's, it's just like you, you can't even take it in. Like you can't even process it, right? Mm -hmm. So around this time, we, the cardiologist is coming and the cardiologist basically comes in, Janie, and she's very quiet. You can tell she's a little worried. Like we could see it in her face. She's whispering to Dr. Mitchell. So Roy at this point is like asking her, he's like, is her heart okay? Um, and she's like, her heart is fine. He's, she said her lungs, is, she's struggling and it's making her heart work harder. Mm -hmm. And he was, she was like, we need to find the ABG. And so basically she tells Dr. Mitchell and like, she, we need, we have to find the ABG for this baby. What we now understand, I think what the cardiologist was trying to find the ABG for was so she could qualify for ECMO so they could send it. Right. Hmm. And so, but my thing is we're, it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Y'all haven't, what we later learned is that they, they took ABG at birth. And that's like, I think it, and maybe one other time right after she was born. So like you're ventilating a child without the proper oxygen levels, blood oxygen levels. 
So like we now understand that, right? Like you switched a ventilator on a baby and you did not have blood oxygen levels. Like the cardiologist had to come in and tell you to get blood oxygen levels. And you've, you've gotten her records, you've reviewed her records, you've gone through the notes. Um, and that's how you discovered that one, one doctor for 12 hours, there was no notes there. No notes there. Like we actually, um, at one point I knew who she was by face but I didn't find her, I, I didn't have her notes initial, initially. So mm -hmm. I was like, something is missing. It didn't take, it was the first meeting where we actually connected that she didn't have. Like we knew some a doctor's notes was missing, mm -hmm. but yeah. it was like so clear when we saw the records, right? So um, they come in, Janie, and they're poking Moxie all over the place trying to find the ABG. They just cannot find the ABG. At this point, the social worker comes in and she's basically like, um, she says, um, hey, how's everything going? Like, nothing. Like, I don't know. I, I just can't even, I don't even have words for it. So mm -hmm. I'm like, I, don't, I say, I don't understand why they're not transporting Moxie to Texas children like I asked. Why they keep telling my insurance is not gonna cover it. She says, oh, Verdi, they think you have Medicaid. She's like 70% of women in here have Medicaid. Janie, you could like feel my, the, the heat of my body. Just, I'm, I'm infuriated at this point. Sure. And I'm just like, and, I, and, I, and my first words were, it doesn't matter if I have Medicaid or not. I said, so, so kids with Medicaid can't get transported? Well, Medicaid doesn't pay out of state. Like they don't, they're not gonna pay for a baby to be transported out of state. You have to go through in-state hospitals first. And so I'm like, I'm like, well, my baby's not on Medicaid. Can we get the process to Texas children? So she then says, no, like we're gonna, we do in-state first. And is that a, is that a hospital policy? Um, or I'm trying to understand, like, who decides that is, you know, if your insurance clearly accepts um, are okay with you to go to Texas, is that a hospital policy that they, um, do they try, or is it a, you know, the closest hospital or, in which I understand it's probably, you know, you were closer, I guess, to New Orleans. Yeah, closer to New Orleans. Um... What I later learned in the meetings okay. that um, what I later learned in the meetings is that one, when a parent asks for transport, a baby should be transported, period. Yeah. So even on the executive level, they were very clear about that. And then they were very clear that babies with Medicaid get transported out the state all the time. Yeah. Like that is not. That's why I wasn't understanding. Like, is it a policy or was this just something they decided to come up as a game plan on their own? It's something that I think doctors just feel they have the right to talk about there. Like, I think they thought, so Jane, what you gotta realize is me and Roy's not married. If you look at my chart, they see single black woman. And the assumption is that I am on Medicaid and that I don't have resources. Mm -hmm. And they talked to me as I was on Medicaid and I didn't have resources. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. or like, or like it, it's, it's almost like racial profiling at its best. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt like. Does that make sense? Whether they were conscious of it or not. Whether they were conscious or not. Yeah. Yes. Let me let me ask a question here. So 
they they said that you they had a high percentage of people there that were on Medicaid. What did the makeup of the patients look like as opposed to the staff as far as race? So what I later learned, Russell, is that in our executive meeting, okay, one is we did not see one black doctor, one black nurse while we were in the NICU. Um, anywhere. <laughs> like we didn't see it. Um, later, what I learned is that the hospital, um, when I met with the executives, they they did acknowledge that they have a issue that there is a problem there with the lack of um black doctors and nurses. And the that nurses. they really, yeah, they really needed to they the nurse literally, um, the executive, the head of nursing near near literally opened her a book and said, we need to do better at this. And can you help me? That's what she said. Because I, I, I brought, I brought it up. I was like, I don't understand why you don't have black nurses and doctors in the NICU. Like, it is sad that I went through a whole almost three days in the NICU and I saw one person that looked like me. And I said because I don't. There was a CNN article that came out that said babies tend to survive when black doctors are taking care of them. And it was an article that came out and I brought that up and I was like, they're three times more likely to survive. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was like, I don't, th this is a problem. And so she acknowledged that there was a problem in the hospital. And it gets progressively better because as um, I released a, a, a video um, with a local advocate here, um, and I'm getting women um, from Southern nursing school, I'm hearing a lot of stories about how they, one, don't hire Black nurses, and once they're hired, they treat it poorly. So it's ongoing, ongoing conversation in this city how Black women are nurses, men are women, are treated in that hospital, and they do not want to work there. And it's very hard for a person of color to get hired there. And so it's just overall so devastating, because had I known that, I would have never delivered my child there, ever. Yeah. What, what percentage of the patients would you say were of color? Um, I'm not quite sure, but it's, it's extremely high mm -hmm. because um, they, and I, and I think their Medicaid population is extremely high, if mm -hmm. that makes sense, mm -hmm. because they did not want it to be said that um, Medicaid did not transport kids. Does that make sense? Right. I just know that in, we're in Baton Rouge. They have a high population of African-American women that have babies there. I, I would say it's well over 60%. If I had to put, if I had to take a guess at it. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, I feel like the ball was dropped on so many levels, but um, going back to the social worker who said, oh, they thought you had Medicaid. But this is a this was a birth that was planned because you had to have a cardiologist, you had to have a surgeon, you had to have, you know, NICU. Like, so all of these doctors, I'm sure, whether they were in network or not, looked to see what kind of insurance you had so that their services would be covered. Right. Um, so I'm trying to understand if even just saying, well, they thought you had Medicaid was also somewhat of a cover-up because how do we go all through pregnancy and planning and visitation and looking through the charts and you're, we mess up and not know what kind of insurance yes, we have. I think it's also, it's, um, it's profiling. 
right? What people need to understand, and I and I and I got a lot of like even when I put the video out there, I got a lot of women that said, I have a black OB. Like I I, I make sure that I'm like I, I have to, I'm gonna have an advocate in a hospital for me and my baby. Mm-hmm. And I I had a black OB. You know what I'm saying? And once you deliver that baby, that OB will come and check on you. But what you got to realize, once your baby is put in a NICU, this is way beyond a OBGYN. Definitely. We're we're talking about pulmonary cardiologists. You're talking about pulmonologists that my baby didn't even see. They told me that if her lungs were severe, she would have a pulmonologist come see her, which she didn't. Yeah. We're talking about neonatologists, right? You're talking about NICU nurses like it is such a bigger picture than an OBGYN right yeah OBGYN is going to treat the mom you know right. at that point it becomes two patients right absolutely mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and like like they name it to like it's it's Verdi and it's your baby like you are yes. two separate patients yes and so um what so what women need to understand is like when you're going in these hospitals, you have no choice on who is going to be your doctor, your baby's doctor. Neonatologists work on call. Like they have a time frame when they're in the hospital. So you don't know who's going to see your baby. Mm-hmm. I just got the worst luck of the draw, right? I, actually, I honestly think the last neonatologist, had he been the first, she would, be, she would, she would still be alive today. I just so happened to get three that just did not think a little black baby's life was worth putting in the effort. Our social worker who thought it was worth calling Texas children are fighting for a hospital to take her. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so Verdi, how did you get from, you know, Moxie passing and then you, you, you get to um, meetings Um, did it just click or did you just have, did you just really want to express your, your experience to the executives of this hospital? So let me say this. So they come in to get her ABG. Um, I have to go back to my room. Like I literally had to eat. Roy had to go and eat. And then we came back. We, I mean, we were gone maybe an hour, hour and a half. So we came back. And by that time, we had a new um, doctor, Dr. Solto, and he came in the room. I'm Like Janie, you could see where the doctors are. You just could see that he wasn't happy, right? So he comes in the room and he's like, I have a cardiologist coming. We have to find her ABG because if we could find her ABG, then we could transport her, right? Mm-hmm. And he's the best. So me and Royce in back like, why didn't y'all call this cardiologist at six o'clock in the morning when you knew you needed an ABG? Right. And even going through the notes, it's so disturbing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he calls the doctor in. I'm sitting with Kitsia. Are you going to call Texas children? Well, we're just going to wait to see. I don't understand why y'all didn't call. Like we're talking about this. And how many hours? This is like the next day. This is. This was Moxie was born at 111. This was around six o'clock. And if you look in the notes, the cardiologist makes it clear. And he says, this is a critical baby. Mm. At no point did one person tell us Moxie was critical. Not one person. Not at this point, not one doctor has sat down with us and said, this is her diagnosis. Let's talk about it. Not one. They kind of told us things by the bedside. And when we asked, they was like, they would kind of answer and then they would move along. Like we weren't even worth the conversation. Right? Wow. 
So we, so he pulls us into a room. He's the first doctor to pull us in a room. And Janie basically, and we, I asked him, I was like, what is going on? Like I, one doctor saying one thing. I was like, one doctor said she needed an artery. He literally said, who said that? So then Roy was like, are y'all even meeting? Like, are y'all even having conversations? And so he's like, yes, we are, we are. Clearly they weren't, right? Um, and so he basically sits us down and he says, if we, he's like, you, you have an option, you could put her in an ambulance. We are pretty sure, sure she will die. She will not survive transport. Or you could let her die here with you. That's basically what he told us. And we had to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So we, we decided to keep her there. So hmm. that's always the hard part. Yeah. So, yeah. We're in the room and around midnight she codes. This doctor, literally, I think he tried. It was too late. By the time he got her, it was too late. But I do think he tried to cover up for the other three. Mm -hmm. So he kneels next to us and he says, we all know it was pulmonary hypertension. Wouldn't you agree? I don't think we need an autopsy. As she's dying. Like, well, I, I don't know because I don't even know her prognosis. I don't know her diagnosis. I don't know anything. <laughs> It's so overwhelming. We're like, sure, whatever. Yeah. Like we couldn't even, pro like the nurses are literally pumping her chest as he's doing that. So as we, Roy and I are headed to the funeral and he looks at me and he's like, we need to talk about this. He was like, everything about this was wrong. And I couldn't even process that. I think it gave me like a week to like, go through it yeah and we started talking about it a day after that he was like Bertie we got to figure out what happened to her because none of this is right so Janie we go um we I come back home then I noticed that the hospital had called like a number like a hospital and then I get a call again it's my OBGYN and she's literally when at, she met me at the hospital the day after Moxie died and she was shocked she was like She's like, Verdi, I've never lost a baby with an infallacil. I just don't know what happened. Like, she was so remorseful, right? Mm -hmm. And so she was like, I feel like I missed something. That's what she told me. So she calls me and she's like, I'm so sorry. She's like, what happened? Can you just explain to me what happened? So I go through it. And I literally told her, I was like, I thought they was going to kill me. That's why I got you. Because mm -hmm. I, I was sure they were going to kill me. I was mm -hmm. like, I never thought they would kill her. Like I never thought it, right? And so she connects me back with the social worker that was initially supposed to support us in the hospital. And that is when the social worker was like, oh, well, you were on medicine and you know, tried to make excuses. And when she noticed that I wasn't backing down, she was like, look, we're gonna get you a meeting with the doctors. So I get a meeting with the four doctors that had Moxie. Um, Dr. Valenki, which was, um, she's, she's Indian. She was very remorseful. She apologized for not talking to me. Every other doctor in there, Janie had an excuse. Mm -hmm. um, basically what they tried to make me believe is that Moxie would have died regardless, right? And that the hospitals didn't want to take her. So when I said, I said, well, did you ever call Texas children? And they're like, so, so, um, Dr. Soto was like, uh, She's like, uh, so the social worker said, no, we didn't. And I said, 
I said, um, I said, so y'all trying to convince me she wasn't going to survive. How do you know she wasn't going to survive? Did you ever call? And she said, no. I said, you didn't even call. And she said, no. And so Roy is like, I want to see proof where y'all called the other two hospitals. Like, I want to see it. it. They really didn't say anything about that. Um, and then Dr. Soto jumps in and he says, well, it could have cost y'all $30,000 if y'all was to transport your baby. Like, But what's the cost of the life of my child? And, and you, again, racial profiling me mm, because yeah. it's in classism at its best mm. because you're assuming that we didn't have $30,000. Me and Roy are two professional people mm-hmm. with resources. If we needed $300,000, mm-hmm. we would have figured that out, right? And so um, for the life of our child. So- um wow the other three doctors i'm gonna tell you right now valenki looked furious to not valenki volker dr volker looked uh furious to even be in the meeting um and mitchell you know i i gave mitchell a pass don't you after that 12 o'clock meeting after they found the abg she came back to me and told me that moxie looked better and that she was stable and that they would just keep her at the hospital she knew moxie was critical and she knew like Moxley was deathly critical. And she told me that. So did you uh, question about the notes that were not there during this, not meeting? At this meeting? Because um, I think we, I think I, I knew, I knew who the doctors were. Roy had never met Valenki. So he was thinking Dr. Valenki was Dr. Volker. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it took us, so we go through that meeting. We don't address the notes. We know that something is missing, but we don't address it there. What they do do is show us the x-ray, Janie, of her diaphragm. It is clear. It is clear that she had underdeveloped lungs. Like you could see it, right? So it made a lot of sense when we read the notes. And at 1.11, she was born. At 3 o'clock, they x-rayed her. They knew she had pulmonary hypoplasia and hypertension with a large infolocele. They knew at three o'clock they could not take care of Moxie. Mm. Not one person told us her prognosis. We learned about it by reading the notes. Wow. I addressed that. Um, They really didn't say anything. What they tried to make me believe was like, look how bad it is. She wouldn't have survived. So basically they were trying to make me believe she wouldn't have survived. So they had this information at 3 p.m. Moxie was born at 1.11. They had an x-ray at 3 p.m. By 6 p.m., this is when you're getting concerned. But even at 6 p.m., you don't know that this is the condition of her lungs. You know that she's on a ventilator, but you don't know the condition of her lungs. Right. And Jamie, premature babies, and I'm not, Moxie wasn't, she wasn't even premature. Moxie was five pounds. Mm -hmm. She was little, but she wasn't premature. Like, ventilators are normal for babies, right? That have lung, that have underdeveloped lungs. Mm -hmm. You're right. Even reading her notes, it wasn't her Abgar scores that were completely, they weren't bad. Mm Mm-hmm. What they said was her color was blue. They intubated her because they felt like her color was, they couldn't get her color. She needed to, a little help with oxygenation. She needed a little bit of help with oxygenation. Okay. Yeah. And so um, I'm, I'm looking at this because like Janie, I haven't been on this Facebook group. 
And I don't, I know for a fact, and they tried to say, well, the hospital, the, they didn't want to take her for ECMO, just with her Amphala seal. So I know for a fact, y'all feeding me bull, because I know for a fact, babies with hypertension, hyperplasia, and have been on ECMO have survived. And some haven't. But the, the, the problem is, you haven't even given my child a chance at survival. This was a full-term, isolated Amphala seal baby. This was not... These babies who have genetic issues are, li are living, right? Mm -hmm. Severe genetic issues. So they tried to convince me I was not having it. Um, as we're walking out, the social worker pulls me off the side and I told them they could pull the cameras. And she whispers to me and says, I knew you didn't, I knew you had insurance. The nighttime doctor read your chart wrong, Moxie's chart wrong. So I'm like, what did she read wrong? She's like, I, like really, she was like, I can't say. But she was like, I just want you to know. So I think she was trying to cover her ass at this point, right? So I get, we get to the truck, like Roy's truck. And I'm like, Roy, she told me this. And he was like, oh, we were like, oh, hell no. So we asked for another meeting with Dr. Volker Valenke and um, the head of neonatology. So we meet with him because I'm not satisfied, right? In that first meeting, um, they were like, she's not going to survive anyway. So I basically was like, so you're telling me babies with hyperplasia and hypertension don't survive. That's what you're saying. And they were like, no, some babies do, some babies do. Well, don't sit here and make me believe that because we all know that's not true. Mm -hmm. So then we go, we meet in the second meeting. I really do think this Dr. Sp Spidell is head of neonatology. It is clear to us after this meeting that they really weren't meeting about Moxie. Mm. Because had they been meeting about Moxie, all of those doctors would have been clear in the plan that she would be transported. All of those doctors would have known I had insurance. Like you would have also, you would have known that I was, right. And they would have also known that I was educated and they would have known that I might've been single female, black, but I wasn't not naive to the fact of what was going on with my child, right? Mm -hmm. So it was, it's no way they were meeting. I even asked questions like, why was her lungs not diagnosed in advance? Like the maternal fetal medicine doctor missed it. And the radiologist who read her MRI clearly missed it. And the cardiologist that was looking at her lungs, not that it was her job, but is she didn't even raise flag. I went through several 3D images where he looked at her lungs. Mm. So even in going to my Facebook group, women, they know before they even have their babies what these lungs look like. Mm. So it just goes to show me they were not prepared at all for Moxie. So they made me feel secure in having her there. Why? I have no idea. Only to not be prepared for me having her there. So we go through that meeting. And to treat you pretty terribly in the process. I was absolutely treated yeah. like a single black woman on Medicaid mm. and, and, and not that you should be treated badly. Yeah. yeah. Like you yeah. should, but they just assume you're not educated. You don't have the resources and they could treat you any kind of way. And they don't have to give your baby the basic standard of care. That's what they think. Right. And so it was clear through my whole, I, like we totally experienced discrimination and racism at its best. Right. We totally did. So, um, so we go into that meeting 
um, that's where we address the notes. Um, so the, the head of neonatology was like, no, she clearly has notes. It took him about 20 minutes to locate addendums to notes that she had. Mm -hmm. So that means she came later and put notes. She literally copied and pasted the nighttime doctor's notes, like um, the Dr. Valenki's notes and just added a sentence. So in the notes, she lied and said that she met with us that night and all of that. She looked at me and Roy in the face and said, oh, I met with y'all that night to, and talked to y'all. And Roy was like, lady, I don't even know who you are. Wow. And he was like, no, you didn't. He was like, pull the tapes. You could tell she's getting agitated. And then I'm like, why do you have addendums, right? Mm -hmm. what, I have the original notes. Mm -hmm. So then Dr. Spadell was like, well, there's a lot of notes that's not in here. And I'm like, well, if it was original notes, it would be an original notes. Let's just acknowledge that she put addendums to notes once she realized she didn't have notes mm -hmm. and we were asking questions, right? Were you able to get those addendums later? Yes, I was able to get them. Okay. And, um, and like just saying things like in a parental uh, statement that she met with us and mm. we talked about her prognosis, which is lies, which we didn't do. Um, and she actually literally looked at Roy and I and said, I didn't take notes because I was too busy taking care of your baby. That's what she wow. said. That's unfortunate. That is what she said to us. So Dr. Spadell is clearly like nervous. He just like, I, it, you know what it felt like? I, I, did not I did not care for your baby. Like, I, I can't even answer these questions. I gave him a list of questions to go through. Like, I'm like, y'all need to explain to me like why y'all didn't talk to me in advance. I need to understand when y'all called Ashner. You need to talk to my maternal fetal medicine doctor. I need to understand why this was not pre-diagnosed. All of this. I get, after that meeting, I get a letter in the mail from public relations specialist saying that she would now handle the case. So Dr. Spadell is clearly like, I'm done with this. Mm -hmm. The only thing that he made sure I got was all of my notes compiled. Yeah. So where are you in this process? Where are you at in the process? Um, right yeah, like I know that nothing can ever bring Moxie back. Um, and I mean, that's, it's so painful. I know it's so hurtful and I know it hurts deeply. Yeah. Um, what do you want to see happen? So I had one more meeting, Janie, let me just say that. And that was with the executives. I did, I'd filed a formal complaint. Um, I was very clear that I felt like I was discriminated against, um, that we were racial profiled, that there was, um, I talked a lot about um, unconscious bias towards us. Mm -hmm. Um, I made that clear when I, the CEO wrote me a letter. Um, and I just have to just share this, Janie, because it's just mind blowing to me because there was two pieces in the letter after my complaint, after all of this that has happened to me, see if I could find it. She sends me a letter and she was says, I was very sad to learn of your loss of your daughter and wanted to express my deepest sympathies to you and your family. The grieving process is profound and overwhelming. I hope you are starting to experience some sense of moving forward at this time. Hmm. How insensitive can you be? Like you have not answered one of my questions 
and you're going to tell me you hope I'm moving forward. And then she says, they thoroughly investigated everything that occurred that evening, and she would be happy to meet with me on the fightings of the hospital's actions and that of that night and listen to my thoughts and how they can do better. Mm. Um, and she wants to be sure the hospital's in, in, um, inclusive. And that she, re she reviewed all aspects of the tragic loss of, Mox of Moxie in the care. And given the significance of her pulmonary hypoplasia, we believe the care she received was appropriate and do not believe that any alternative, alternative course of action could have changed the outcome. So she basically wants me to believe after I have like literally talked to mothers who babies went on ECMO, who had way more severe issues than Moxie, that hypoplasia killed her. Well, simply being denied the transfer, we will never know. We will never know. So even to be so insensitive, to even try to make me believe that, like, we don't know. So you're telling me for certain that you, her hypoplasia was so bad that she was going to die. And then let's go back. You never discussed hypoplasia with me mm -hmm. in the hospital. At no point was hypoplasia mentioned. I only learned about hypoplasia when I read her notes. And I had to get medical experts to explain to me what hypoplasia was. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, I meet with the executive. The CEO does not show up. It's a lot of tears. It's a lot of I'm sorry's. Um, I asked the question, I said, if your baby had a large infolocele, was diagnosed at three o'clock with hypoplasia, hypertension, head of nursing, would you allow your baby to stay in this hospital? And she goes, no. I also, she also says that they need more diversity in the hospital. She also said that they're working, she's in charge of working on a plan, which was alarming. It's 2020 and you're just working on a plan. On a diversity plan. Right. Um, and it's clear that even leadership, executive leadership is not black. Because if it was, the first thing you would have put in a room with me was another a black woman or black man. Yeah. So there's there's all levels to this. Like we mm -hmm. now know that even on executive level, they lack diversity and inclusivity. And it trickles down all the way to doctors, nurses, where you will find more diversity is with janitorial staff, food service, things like that in the hospital. So at this point, um, and Jane, let me tell you, when I tell you no one wants to talk about this, like this is the- Yeah, I know. Like no one, even it's so it's so draining to even talk about it. Yeah, you know? I know, I'm sure. Two, it's like, you're so hurt. Yeah. And then it's like you doubt, like you question yourself. Like a lot of women leave a hospital, and I and actually after I put a video out about what happened to me, an interview, um, women said I knew something happened, I just could not express it in words. And when I saw your video, it's like the same thing. Yeah. And so um, it's we, a big issue. It's a it's big, a big issue. issue, and it's and it's it's not talked about. Um, it's, not. it's not because you know what? It's two things. It's hard to prove, right? Yeah. And the hospitals are so big in power. Yeah. That 
they it's people are scared to go against the hospital right yeah um even suing for malpractice in louisiana um it's hard to find a lawyer because yes we we t- we actually looked up some information regarding exactly. that exactly mm-hmm. yeah and and part of that reason is there there's a, a a layer of protection because most states i think the maximum you could actually even sue them for is $500,000. On malpractice, yeah. On malpractice. And I, and I think that's some, like, say, about 30 states here in America, but there's, say, about 20 of them that at some point deemed it unconstitutional to place a cap on it. Right. So there was, like, a cap either on damages or, or pain and suffering. So a lot of times, depending upon the state, they may not want to take the case. But there are some situations, though, even though there is a cap, if they can find enough negligence or say ill intent that they're they're able to seek more in damage. Right, absolutely. And so that's exactly what lawyers were telling us, right? And so another layer to this is that normally babies that die, especially black babies, you had some type of medical issues going on in the base case, right? It's not like I went to the hospital and they cut off my wrong arm. It's mm-hmm. like this baby was premature. It had undeveloped lungs. It like the, the hospital talks away, like she had an seal. Mm-hmm. like the other, the, they didn't want to take her for ECMO machine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but not to mention like this is something we discussed in advance. You never even told me there were qualifications for ECMO. I would have put her in a hospital that had ECMO, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is, it's also very hard with like birth defects or it's very hard with um, any issues that even a mother that has preeclampsia or something like that, it's hard to prove that it was negligent. And so it is a constant battle, right? So finding a, finding a lawyer is difficult. The second thing is that I did not want to let go is we were discriminated against. It was the color of our skin that did not allow allow Roy up to NICU. It was the way I was treated is the way my baby was treated because the way the way we look. Does that make sense? You made assumptions about us because we were black in that hospital and everything you did shows it right. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to let go of like the discriminatory piece. Like we have to also acknowledge that this is happening to black women at an alarming rate. You just cannot put it off because we didn't get good prenatal care or that we lack resources. This is happening to black women who are educated, that have jobs, that work hard, that get the best prenatal care. Like this is happening to us. And it shouldn't happen to any of us, but this is not a class issue which it is in some instance this is also a huge race issue right it is easy when a cops pull you over to know that you are being discriminated against the same thing is happening to us but just in a hospital capacity mm-hmm. and it just is and it, it was sad it's just just not women i mean any person of color going in the hospital should be worried, but especially women going in having babies. Like, I, I yeah, it, it's unexplainable. Like, I just, and so I was lucky because um, I I went to different lawyers, several lawyers 
um, didn't even want to touch the discriminatory piece. Like they were just like, no, like we, we definitely think you have some malpractice, but we're not going to touch this. Mm. I even had a lawyer tell me, um, he said, look at you. He was like, how would anybody think you were on Medicaid? Like, I just don't see it. And like you had, he said, um, white women that took care of your baby, they're a minority too. And so it's just like this total. Yeah, and people just don't, yeah. No, like just, so finally, Janie, I did find um, a lawyer, his name is Ron Haley out of Baton Rouge and he's taken on a lot of civil rights cases. Okay. And so when we told our story, I just think he was compelled, right? Um, and like he said, um, like he, he, we were talking, he was like, Verdi, and he did some research. He was like, this is a big civil rights issue mm -hmm. that no one is talking about. And he was like, I'm taking this case just for the principle of the matter. He was like, we have to get it out there and we have to educate people. So Janie, to your question where you said, what do I want to see? One, I want to be very clear with the hospital. You do not get to discriminate against me. Give me poor care and be negligent and think you're going to tell me you're sorry. Like, th like that is not going to happen. And I'm going to sue you. Like I, th there's no other, because you have to be held accountable, right? I also want to see changes in the hospital. I want to see changes on an executive level. I would love to see a diversity in um, uh, an executive that sits, that just holds some type of diversity and inclusive, inclusive, inclusivity type role, right? That that's what they focus on. Um, and I would, I wanna see more black nurses and doctors hired in that hospital, not just OBGYNs, I'm talking about neonatologists, I'm talking about NICU nurses, I'm talking about cardiologists. I wanna see more people of color that look like us in that hospital. And I want to see more, more of us in a NICU ward that's actually taking care of our sick babies. So that is something that I want to see. And I think that needs to happen sooner than later. And if I have to fight with every breath in my body and so same thing with Moxie's dad, that's what we're going to do. Also would like to see legislation at some point. Um, and I know that um, like there, there's different nonprofits working on this. So just really getting in tune to that. Maybe one day having my own nonprofit that support women um, in this in this realm, um, but def definitely some type of legislation, um, some type of of uh, safeguards put on hospitals um, that you know we can acknowledge when this is happening. Or doctors that have high infant mortality rates that 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 um, that women can look at that and see that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, like if I have a baby with a large infallible seal, I need to understand that. And like even hospitals taking accountability, no baby at woman's hospital should be born with a birth defect like the one Moxie had and they not have an ECMO machine. Mm -hmm. You need to tell a parent that you don't have what it takes to support that child. So I think it's a mixture of things that I wanna see. Um, and I think the only way in this new age, um, especially in like Black Lives Matter, because they do matter, um, is that we need to um, be, have more of a voice on social media. Like we can't be quiet. Like we have, to, we have to take a stand and we have to say this happened to me. 
Did this happen to you? Inbox me when this happened to you. Where did this happen to you? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We have to start building these networks where people are coming out and saying, like, hey, this happened. So if you're sitting in the you're sitting in the NICU with a doctor that I have said this happened to me with, and you're feeling the same thing I'm feeling, you could say, I don't want this doctor. I want another doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Bertie, um, you know, Moxie only lived close to 48 hours, but I see her life serving a huge purpose and I, and I see it for generations and generations to come. And, um, and just, just know and trust and believe her life. She's going to get all the glory for this. She is. Yeah, you don't. And I I can say um, I and this is my opinion. I do believe that hospital failed you. Yeah, you the simple fact of denying your transfer. You were failed. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And And then also go ahead. Finish. I was just going to say and whether that denial was based on your insurance, the color of your skin, you know, you're not having $30,000 sitting in your bank account or assuming that you didn't, whatever it was, you were failed. Yeah. Just a simple denying of that transfer. That is your right as a patient, period. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think there was an admission of guilt when they try to get you to acknowledge that they come into the room when you were sedated when they didn't. Right. You know, because at that point, if you would agree that possibly they did, how deep would that rabbit hole have gone? Right. You know, they could have swept everything under while we talked to you about it and you said this or you said that, but, you know, I I think you're very brave for one, to be able to, to stand here and tell your story and also to stand up against the mistreatment and injustice. So one, one question I do have, what advice would you give to say young women or old women who are, are going into a similar situation? Right. What information would you equip them with, you know, and, and aid them to try to prevent right. this from ever happening again? So I would tell any woman, um, whether you have health issues or you know your baby is going to have health issues, you need to go to a hospital that specializes in those issues. I don't care. And this is like not Black women, just Black women. This is any woman. If you know that you're going to have health issues, you need to go to the hospital or your baby, you need to go to the hospital that specializes in it. I don't care if it's 300 miles away, I don't care what it is, um, because you need to be with the best people who understand what's going on. And they will try to convince you that they got it and they can make it work, but that is just not the case. And that's something that I wish someone would have told me. So first and foremost, go where they specialize, right? If you have cancer, You might want to go to MD Anderson, especially if it's a very specific type of cancer that people don't see often. This birth defect that Moxie sees happens in every so many thousands of babies. Like you don't see it often. And so it's important that you go where you have specialists that specialize in it. So that's number one. 
The second thing I would tell Black mothers or women of color is if at any point in a hospital, you feel like they are not giving you answers or you're being ignored, you need to act to speak to the head of hospital. I like that, the, the top of the pyramid that you can go like, I don't wanna talk to a nurse. I wanna talk to a head of nursing. I wanna talk to the head of neonatology. You all will not touch my baby or touch me until I have somebody in here. Um, I think doulas are great. I think that maybe getting somebody to come in the hospital, which is a little bit harder now with COVID, but getting somebody to go through your pregnancy with you, understand, have a background in medicine. I think that's also something I would have considered. Um, but don't let your voice... Um, just don't let them mute your... Um, I think I understood to an extent when I asked for transport that you should be like babies should be transported. The idea that they told me no is a problem. And I think at that point, if I had to do it all over again, I would have like just screamed from the top of my lungs. Like I would have fought back more, but you trust that people are doing the right thing, right? Like, um, like, you know, even though I asked and asked and I over and over again, and I, at some point would go back and forth with them. Like it, I should have, it should have been like no conversation, transport her now, or I don't know what the R is, but I just want women to be aware of their rights, right? Um, our family members or whatever the case may be. And I think that's important. Um. And share your story. I think that's the biggest thing. I'm like, share your story. Um, and, my, and my ending piece to that, Russell, is I had someone call me and something terrible happened to her in that same hospital. And she said to me, I did not, I knew what they did to me was wrong. She was like, but I just could not articulate it. She was like, I just could not put it in words. And when I saw your video, that is when I realized what happened to me like I could put it all together and so we have to we have to share our stories and we have to put people out there that are just not doing what they're supposed to do or hospitals or doctors or doctor's offices because they're going to continue to do it and we're, we're going to stay at these high mortality rates wow that is so true it is no different than say like the me too to movement you, right you have to bring these things to the forefront put them under the microscope Otherwise, right. they're not going to change their behavior. Right. Absolutely. 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 Birdie, um, thank you so much for sharing your story on our podcast. Um, you know, this podcast is about uh, matters of the heart and soul. And I think this is definitely a matter of the heart and soul and so many other things in between. Um, I admire your strength. I think it takes so much strength. I don't think people understand that when a woman just is pregnant and having a baby, and in your situation, you had a C-section, you were healing from a C-section, you were getting up moving, you weren't even, you weren't even taking pain medication, you were taking ibuprofen, Motrin, and then you're, you're trying to, um, trying to wrap your head and process what's happening to my baby. My baby was born at 111. I haven't heard from anyone. It's six o'clock in the evening. It's eight o'clock at night. What's happening? And I don't think people really understand. And I think women 
being emotional beings, we hide those emotions because we don't want to be judged. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to be, you know, that emotional being that we're often labeled as. And when you're having a baby and in the situation you were in, I could only imagine how hard that was processing it. So don't beat up on yourself, not making certain decisions at that moment. Don't beat up on yourself in that. You did what you did. And now in hindsight, you're getting the vision so that Moxie's life can be put in light. And this whole situation can be brought to light as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So guys, we're going to wrap it up. Russell, did you have any other closing remarks? Other than to just tell you, I'm sorry uh, to hear your story. I don't think officially I got a chance to tell you that. Also, (laughs) send my condolences to Roy. Yes. I I feel his pain as well when you mentioned what happened to him. Um, You know, it's one of those situations, I believe, in the law of divine compensation. You know, God's not going to put more on us than what we can bear. And, you know, when something's taken away, something also is given to us. So, you know, you're, you're having a chance now to be a voice for the voiceless. And, uh, you know, I commend you on that. I support you. If there's anything Janie and I can do to help you in that struggle and support you, we're definitely here to do so. Bertie, why don't you say your email so people can reach out, mothers, anyone, support groups, anyone who may want to contact you to talk to you? Sure, absolutely. It's um, V as in victory, Baptiste10 at gmail.com. And Baptiste is B-A-T-I-S-T-E. All right. All right, guys, this was another episode of Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. We just finished hearing the story of baby Moxie with the mother of baby Moxie, Verdi Baptiste. Um, This podcast is inspired by love, God, relationships, spirituality, justice, culture, family, children, finances, freedom, personal growth, energy and vibrations, universal principles, health, education, masculine and feminine energy, music, and all things of the heart and soul. We appreciate you guys. The mission of this podcast is to connect our hearts with our minds. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Verdi, I hope you find all the peace, and I know that everything that you want to see happen is going to happen. Yeah, I believe that. It will. All right, guys, thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.